1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and today my guest is historian Sam Hunicke, who is coming to us from George Mason University. It's a pleasure to have him. Sam, it's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast today. Thanks for joining me.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor to be here.
1: So we're, we're going to be talking today about Sam's new book. I'm really excited about this conversation. The book is called States of Liberation, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany, just out published by the University of Toronto Press 2022. A little bit about Sam and the book. So Sam is assistant professor of history at George Mason, historian of modern Germany, And he's broadly interested in how everyday life intersects with and shapes the relationships between citizens and states. His research focuses in particular on the history of sexuality in 20th century Germany, including queer political activism, lesbianism in the Nazi era, and the history of gay suicide. He writes regularly for Boston Review, The Point, and the LA Review of Books. The book itself, States of Liberation, traces the paths of gay men in East and West Germany from the violent aftermath of the Second World War to the thundering nightclubs of present-day Berlin. Following a captivating cast of characters from gay spies and Nazi scientists to queer politicians and secret police bureaucrats, the book tells the remarkable story of how the two German states persecuted gay men and how those men slowly over the course of decades won new rights and created new opportunities for themselves in the heart of Cold War Europe. Relying on untapped archives in Germany and the U.S., as well as oral histories with witnesses and survivors, Heunicke reveals that communist East Germany was in many ways far more progressive on queer issues than democratic West Germany. So I want to start with my first big question uh, for you, Sam. I I want to ask simply um, about your argument. I I think there's one point in the introduction, which I find really fascinating, where you talk about liberation and defining gay liberation, and you describe it as a project, or you describe it as a project, in your own words, as idiosyncratic, contested, and incomplete. I wonder if you could tell our audience what you mean by that.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I guess when I set out to start writing this, I very much had in mind that there would be sort of two audiences for this book. One is German historians and historians of modern Europe. Uh, the other uh, are historians of uh, sexuality, queer studies scholars, queer theorists, and so on. And so I really wanted to make sure I was making arguments pitched to both of these um, both of these audiences. And so the, the argument you mentioned about what exactly gay liberation or queer liberation is is very much pitched towards the sort of um, queer historian, queer studies side of things. And I guess as I was working my way through the various archives and as I started writing, I kept wrestling with the question of what exactly is liberation in the context of sexuality and gender? And The study is a comparison of gay life and gay politics in East Germany and West Germany. And what I kept sort of hitting my head against was that there wasn't any sort of objective or unitary definition of liberation that I could come up with. There wasn't uh, a sort of universal yardstick by which I could measure the liberation movements, the liberation activism in East Germany and West Germany. And so that's sort of how I evolved this argument. And that's where the title of the book, States of Liberation, comes from, is this notion that gay liberation or queer liberation um, isn't just a unitary thing. It's not um, a single movement. It's not a single goal. uh, It's not something that can be easily encapsulated. You know, looking at the East and West German cases, what really struck me specifically Um, was the, as I say in the introduction, idiosyncratic paths that liberation activism took in these two German states. And so in particular, in the 1970s, you have gay liberation movements starting uh, in West Germany following the reform of paragraph 175, which had previously criminalized all sort of homosexual acts between men. Um, So it's reformed in 1969. And this paves the way for radical gay liberation groups in the early 1970s. And they start out as incredibly political groups. They're incredibly divided, and I'm happy to get more into those divisions. Uh, But they are deeply political, and they have real hopes of of changing West German politics. And in some ways, they really succeed in doing this. But by the 1980s, they very much see themselves... Uh, as failures in terms of, of those political goals. And they sort of redefine themselves as more cultural and social movements um, in the 1980s. And of course, the rise of AIDS and HIV has a lot to do with that as well. In East Germany, you have almost the complete opposite, where you have movements that start out much more focused on the sort of cultural and social side of things. uh, And as they evolve, they become much more political, which is also quite surprising in uh, a socialist dictatorship like East Germany. And by the end of the Cold War period, by uh, the mid to late 1980s, you have two very different visions of what liberation might look like in East and West Germany. In West Germany, you have one that's very much rooted in a consumerist subculture, it's very cultural and social. And you have basically the inverse in East Germany, where you have a lot of political gains, a lot of changes in policy and legislation, but where change, sort of in the lived experience on the ground and the culture, uh, is taking much um, more time. And so that's sort of what I'm I'm getting at in that argument.
1: I, I think that's a great place to start, um, and I really appreciate how you lay out in the course of your chapters this long chronology, um, shifting between the, the Federal Republic and, and the German Democratic Republic between West and East Germany. Um, I like Sam how you describe things throughout the course of your book as as counterintuitive history and, and surprising, and I wonder if you might tell our audience. bit more about your sources so this is this is like the classical german history question where you're combining stasi you know files with oral interviews but um maybe give us a a narrative or, or some idea of how you set out with your intentions and then what kind of um sources you you ultimately found that's
0: a great question and um I think all historians are really attached to their sources. So it's something I'm, I'm happy to go on about, um, hopefully not at too great length. Uh, but in terms of, I guess, maybe the best way to answer this question is to by, is by talking about how I came to this project. I, uh, as an undergraduate at Amherst College, had started reading in the history of sexuality and doing research in um, the history of homosexuality in the Weimar period in the 1920s. And when I came to do my doctoral work, this was an interest that I had, and it was one that I was encouraged to pursue. And I feel really lucky in particular um, that I was coming after a generation or two of really remarkable historians who had sort of paved the way um, in the history of sexuality and made it um, a field that a doctoral student like me could pursue. And so uh, I remember, you know, Talking with my advisor, Edith Scheffer, about what I should write my dissertation on. And at one point, she just sort of offhand said, Well, what happened to queer people in the post war period after World War II? And I started looking into it. And there had been some really wonderful work done on the period by uh, Jen Evans, Clayton Wisnant. But in English, there wasn't actually a ton compared to. Uh, what had been written about the Weimar period or the Nazi period or, or imperial Germany even. And so I started, you know, reading in it, I went to Germany and started looking at various archives and found just these immense treasure troves of documents that hadn't really been um, dealt with in the historiography. I think the, the biggest find, as you already mentioned in your question uh, were these immense uh, Stasi files, these files from the East German secret police. And those, a few people had looked at some of those files. Um, Jen Evans had looked at some. Uh, Josie McClellan, who wrote a wonderful book about gender and sexuality in East Germany, had looked at some of them. But for whatever serendipitous reason, I was given access to all of them, basically. I was given access to just thousands upon thousands of documents about Um, gay men in East Germany. And that in some ways really forms the bedrock of the book. It is a comparative history of of East and West Germany, but the Stasi archives in a lot of ways sort of shaped how I thought about this project. In addition to that, I worked at various other regional archives in Germany. Um, I went to Wiesbaden, I went to Karlsruhe. I worked at the Berlin Regional Archive. I went to Dresden. Um, I did a lot of work at the wonderful collections of the, um, Schules Museum, the gay museum in, in Berlin. Um, that was, inc- yeah, really helpful. And then, and then, as you mentioned, I also conducted oral interviews, um, oral histories with, uh, over 20 individuals, mostly gay men, um, some, some lesbian women who were active in the gay and lesbian liberation movement. And then a few, um, individuals who aren't queer, but who were involved. I think in some ways, the most revelatory or eye-opening interview I got to conduct was with uh, Lothar de Meziere, who was the only freely elected leader of East Germany. He was elected in 1990 as a member of the Christian Democratic Union. And again, this is totally bizarre, but he uh, was somewhat active in the gay and lesbian liberation movement in the 1980s in East Germany as a lawyer. He Uh, would help um, gay and lesbian couples draft wills and powers of attorney and other documents to give their relationships a sort of legal formality. And so I uh, had this totally remarkable experience. I had come across his name in a couple documents, and it's such a distinctive name. And so I knew immediately, oh, this is (laughs) the former prime minister, who's now just a private lawyer. And so I emailed him, I emailed him at his law practice and said, I'd love to interview you about this. And I woke up the next morning with a voicemail from him saying, when can we talk? And uh, when I went to Berlin for my research year, I set up an appointment with him and he regaled me with these tales of um, his involvement in the movement and then what he was able to to try and do for queer people uh, once he became um, the premier of East Germany for a very brief time. So again, I could go on for a long time about these sources, but um,
1: yeah. stop there. I. I- I I really want to return to to some of the stories that you collect, especially among activists in the the 1970s and 1980s. Um, But first, I I have to ask about West Germany and the persecutions of of gay men that went on, as you say, and you have an entire chapter devoted um, to the convictions of, of, I think it was more than 50,000 men. under the statute 175 and, and the, and the sister statute. So I wonder if you might explain to our audience a little bit about the importance of that. And, and as a legacy, you know, in continuity with, with the older laws, as you mentioned, in the Weimar period or the Nazi period, What what was this um, statute 175, 175A and and what ultimately was the legacy of of all of these convictions that happened in the courts? That's,
0: Um, I think 175 in some ways is sort of the red thread that connects the entire book. Um, And so as some of your listeners will know, paragraph 175 is the paragraph of the German criminal code that for a long time criminalized uh, same-sex acts between men. And it originated in the Prussian penal code in the 19th century. Uh, It was adopted into the German imperial um, criminal code after Germany's unification in 1871. And that's when it took the number 175. It at that time only criminalized penetrative sex. So only oral or anal sex between men, which made it quite hard to get convictions because you had to prove in a court of law that this penetration had taken place. Um, Repealing this law was still a major movement of the nascent homosexual rights movement in Imperial Germany and Weimar Germany, and it never succeeded, although it nearly succeeded um, in 1929. When the Nazis came to power, uh, especially after the Night of Long Knives um, and the murder of the gay leader of the stormtroopers, the S.A. Uh, Röhm, they really cracked down. On the gay and lesbian subcultures of the Weimar era. And in 1935, they pass a much strengthened version of paragraph 175 that criminalizes all same-sex acts between men. So it's no longer just penetrative sex. It's anything that can be construed um, as homosexual in nature. And they also pass, as you mentioned, a sister statute, paragraph 175A, uh, which offers even harsher punishments for certain qualified homosexual acts. So for instance, the so-called seduction of youth or male prostitution. This then leads to immense persecution um, during the Nazi period. And after the war, both German states are essentially left with a question of what to do with the statute that um, made uh, essentially all homosexual acts between men a crime. And in East Germany, the Supreme Court of the new communist state very quickly opts to repeal um, paragraph 175, the Nazi version of paragraph 175, and revert to the older version, um, which leads to uh, much lower rates of convictions um, in the 1950s and 1960s in East Germany. West Germany, conversely, decides to retain the Nazi era version of paragraph 175. And as you mentioned, that leads to over 50,000 convictions between 1949 and 1969 in uh, the liberal democracy of uh, West Germany. And so, as you mentioned, that's really the focus of chapter two of the book, is looking at this um, legal persecution of gay men in the Federal Republic of Germany, and trying to explain why it is that a country that was so determined to forget the Nazi past um, That's a great point. Right, was, yeah. was so happy to keep this Nazi era law in place for two decades.
1: Mhm. I it, it's such an important point and I am thinking through the course of your book about the, the patriarchal family politics and not just in the Adenauer government or as it was legislated with the Grundgesetz, with the Constitution of West Germany, but you know, the the continuities that I think you stress Quite rightly about adultery, pornography, abortion, contraception, all these things that had been censured. Um, And, you know, without putting words in your mouth, because we could talk a lot about the Adenauer era and and, and CDU and and what they um, do and their policies, you know, to keep women out of the workplace and things like that. I am wondering if you could talk, you know, as a gender historian and gender sexuality historian about know, what you see as liberalization. I, I see this as, you know, like a, a chance to find the turning point without using words like progressive or, or maybe even you know, homophobia, which you kind of shy away from a bit. But maybe explain, if you could, to our listeners, what how you see this liberalization procedure going on through, through maybe even the 50s and the 60s.
0: Yeah, that's, um, I think, a question that Really gets to to the heart of some of my struggles with this material. Um, So, as you mentioned, I really, uh, one of the arguments I make in the book is that homophobia actually might not be a great term um, for historians to use to analyze, um, you know, the history of queer persecution. Um, I think that it tends to lump together different acts, policies, views um, that may have different sources, different ends, different means, so on and so forth. And so in the book, as you know, I use terms like anti-gay animus, anti-gay prejudice, um, so on and so forth. And I try to be very specific in talking about what acts, what views I'm I'm discussing and where they come from. Uh, and if if it's appropriate, what sort of goals they have, and so um, you know, in making out this continuity between the Nazi era and post-war West Germany, um, I really look at the different reasons that were offered for maintaining this law, and I I talk about this in terms of uh, the government's anti-gay animus. Why was it that they saw gay men as such a dangerous group, and why did they think it was necessary to continue criminalizing their behavior? Um, And so what I really get at there is um, a continuation of um, the fear of the seduction of youth, the fear that gay men are going out and finding sort of young men and boys and turning them into homosexuals through seduction. Um, And then also the fear of gay cliques, of gay uh, socializing, this notion that gay men sort of stick together and form conspiratorial bonds, that they reject mainstream society, and that this um, this was a fear in the Nazi period. And I argue it was a fear that continued into the West German era, and was seen as a threat to the stability of the young republic. And so in the 1950s, in particular, we see a lot of this rhetoric continuing that has its roots in the Nazi period. Um, in terms of to get to your question, though, we start seeing efforts to reform the law. Um, in fact, there are homophile groups that spring up immediately after uh, the end of the war and sort of continue through the early 1950s and press for a reform of paragraph 175. And they are ultimately not successful. Most of them closed down by the end of the 50s. You also have a huge setback uh, for their sort of legal strategy in 1957. They um, There's this major appeal of the law that goes to the constitutional court and the constitutional court completely rejects all of the arguments that paragraph 175 might be unconstitutional um, under the West German basic law. So there's various setbacks in the 1950s. um, and, And then you do have this slow liberalization. And it's one that's very much focused on the law. It's, it's, um, a set of arguments that mostly come out of the legal profession and out of, um, medicine and out of, out of sort of the sexology, um, sexual sciences. And so you have figures, um, like Hans Giese, for instance, who is a doctor who was trained under the Nazis and sort of becomes, um, a leader of the, uh, movement to reform paragraph 175, and they make these very narrowly tailored arguments about why paragraph 175 shouldn't be um, shouldn't be part of the criminal code. They argue that it uh, unjustifiably targets men for something that they can't change about themselves. Um, that this is something that's better dealt with by psychiatrists or psychologists. That it's a medical condition. Um, and uh, that it also invades you know, the sort of privacy that a liberal democracy is supposed to guarantee to its citizens. And so they have these very technical legal and medical arguments that slowly sort of catch on, and by the end of the 1960s um, finally succeed in getting a reform of this
1: law. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that's really interesting. And I you know, those moments of legislation, I think for East Germany, as you mentioned, um, maybe haven't been covered. I don't know if you would agree with this, but haven't been covered as much as they, they could or should in the scholarship. I, I wonder if you would agree with that. And, and I kind of wonder why that is. And if there, you know, as a kind of corollary to this, if, if there was a double standard for, um, gay men and and lesbians in East Germany and, and in West Germany, what would you say to that? Um,
0: so I, The first part of your question about what's going on in East Germany at this time, um, I think it it isn't something that's been well covered. And, you know, it's something that I actually didn't find a ton of sources to explain. So um, I I do talk about uh, the legal persecution of gay men in East Germany, paragraph 175 in its Weimar era version, in in its much less severe version is on the books and the Nazi version of paragraph 178. A remains on the books in East Germany, so you do still have prosecutions of gay men. It's not as though East Germany is some sort of uh, queer utopia in the 1950s or 1960s, but in comparison to um, to West Germany, it is um, it, it's it's quite a bit better from a legal perspective. And so, so, you know, I, I do look at court cases, I look at sort of the legal writings that existed to make this case that in some ways, East Germany in the 1950s is already a bit more progressive or a bit more liberalized than West Germany. Um, but interestingly, they do, uh, in 1968, they promulgate a reform of the criminal code in East Germany that um, gets rid of paragraph 175 and replaces it with a law, paragraph 151, that simply sets a higher age of consent And interestingly, this law includes um, lesbian women in it. So it sets a higher age of consent for same-sex acts for both men and women. And in modern Germany, that's the only law that uh, includes lesbianism in, um, in its sort of definition of homosexuality, which is really interesting. And there's not really a good explanation for how um, this comes about, Eric Hunicky. Ironically, we share the same last name, although we're not at least directly. no relation, <laughs> right? Um, but he, you know, wrote a wonderful dissertation about um, these sort of arg- arguments in this this legal wrangling and sexology in early East Germany. Um, and so he goes into a bit more depth about it, but. Um, in particular, why lesbianism is included all of a sudden in this new law in 1968 isn't something, um, as far as I know, that he's able to explain. So um, it's, you know, some of this is actually still sort of shrouded in mystery in East Germany. In terms of the distinction between gay men and lesbians, um, you know, for much of this period, uh, lesbianism is not Criminalized in any way, uh, paragraph one seventy five doesn't include female homosexuality in its in its definition of what's criminalized. Um, that of course does not mean that lesbian women don't face persecution. Um, they are as women, they are very much. Um, you know, have the same expectations, especially in West Germany, that they will be mothers, that they will be wives. There's a great deal of pronatalism that inflects the discourses in Adenauer's Germany. Um, in East Germany... We know that uh, there was at least the possibility that lesbian mothers who say divorced their husbands or were discovered to be lesbians could be deprived of their children, um, that a court could potentially use their sexuality as a reason to take their children away. So this is actually something else that um, requires a lot more investigation. It's not something that's been looked into a ton. Um, One really exciting book that's um, coming out, I think in the next few years is by Andrea Hottmann, uh, who does look at um, both gay men and lesbians in the fifties and sixties in Berlin.
1: Mm, That's exciting. I I mean, I I want, you know, to come back toward the end, if we may, and and ask you for some recommendations on uh, current literature and and historiography. Um, But, you know, I, in turning toward the 1970s, because, I, again, I think this Alltagsgeschichte aspect of your book is, is so rich, all of the stories, um, we can't possibly cover you know, the, the great like oral history that you've done in this book and social history that you've done. But I wonder if, if you might share for some of our readers um, those stories as, as you uncover them, and in particular after 1970. 19- 68 maybe for East Germany or 1969 for West Germany which was such a public turning point um, what were some of the stories that that really um, sort of sparked you or, or or made made you pay attention?
0: Um, that yeah that's a great question I think um, this was the first time that I had done oral history and, it was such a revelatory and eye-opening experience to go and interview people who had lived through this period. I do just want to briefly say I uh, interviewed several people, um, you know, who were teenagers or kids in the 1950s and 1960s, and were able to talk quite movingly about their first sexual experiences under Paragraph 175 when it was still in force, and the sort of sense of fear that they had, in particular, in West Germany. Uh, there was one, there was one man, um, who, uh, you know, started having, um, sex with men as a teenager and, um, one of his lovers was discovered and was sent to prison, um, for, I think about seven years, if I'm remembering it correctly as a result. And this is something that clearly still, uh, haunts him to this day. And it's something that, that still, he, I think feels a sense of guilt about, um, that in some way he, he might've been responsible, although of course he wasn't, it, it was this awful law that was responsible. Um, so anyway, that, that was part of, of what I was looking for in these interviews, but then, uh, I was able to interview a lot of the activists, um, in both East and West Germany who participated in the liber in the liberation movements of the 1970s and the 1980s.
1: Um, I'll, I mean, I could go on. And yeah, we, we can, <laughs> we, we can, we can talk about that. I think, you know, like Stonewall is so important in 1969, because it, it sparks a number of um, movements, and, and some of them take, you know, national styles, I would say in the United States, this might be true. Um, I'm wondering if, if you could, you know, get into that a little bit on the activist scene, both culturally, subculturally, and and, and maybe, you know, like talk about the layers of liberation, if if that makes sense, because you know, there's a le- there's obviously political, legal through parties that support certain things, cultural, social, existential, commercial, cons- consumerist. But what does that mean to you?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, and that obviously gets to the heart of what I'm talking about uh, when I when I write about states of liberation is that there are all these sort of layers to liberation and that they don't sort of they don't always line up neatly. Um, So it's interesting that you mentioned Stonewall because, in fact, one of the arguments I have in the book is that Stonewall and the American experience eventually take on a huge significance for activists in West Germany in particular. But initially, when these movements are getting started, I don't think there's actually a huge significance. So... um, Mm, That's interesting. Right. So Stonewall obviously happens in... um, 1969, uh, that's the same year that paragraph 175 is reformed in West Germany. And you start getting uh, a new subculture, a new gay and lesbian um, and queer subculture that evolves in West Germany as a result of this legal reform. So you start getting uh, new magazines that are pitched specifically to gay readers, um, like Du und Ich or Him. And they, you know, contain all sorts of things. They have reporting on persecution. They have, you know, sort of uh, lot, plenty of pornographic or pseudo-pornographic images. They also have personal advertisements, which become a really important uh, coagulant in the gay subculture. Right, this is a way for men and women to meet each other, um, which is sort of, you know, um, somewhat novel for Germany at the time. There had been other. Magazines in the '50s that had tried to do this and had basically been shut down, um, but uh, so you start getting this subculture that 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 really starts to grow and and thicken and develop these bonds um, among queer people, and then a real turning point comes uh, in the early 1970s. Um, a director named Rosa von Braunheim works with a sociologist named Martin Daneker. Um, they're both still alive today, and. Uh, they create this film called um, "It is not the homosexual who is perverse, but rather the situation in which he lives." Um, it's a, a mouthful of a title, <laughs> um, and it it isn't actually, I think, that good of a film. Um, it basically tells the story of this gay man, Daniel who sort of traverses the gay subculture. He starts off in a stable relationship with someone his own age. He then becomes sort of a kept boy for an older man. He then you know, just sort of increasingly looks for quick sex in the subculture. Um, and the, the story is this sort of fall from grace, and he winds up at the end of the film completely depressed and drunk at this uh, famous beer bar, um, Ellie's Beer Bar in West Berlin. And uh then he meets a group of student radicals and they take him back to their commune and they sort of talk about gay liberation and how gay people need to, you know, forge solidarity and be proud of um uh out of uh, proud of their identity. And there's this famous line, you know, out of the toilets and onto the streets uh from the film. And this film it's shown all around the country and it is incredibly motivating to young um, queer people. And they start to found um, what, what are called action groups. So there's the um, Homosexual Action West Berlin, exactly. And there are sort of similar groups founded all around the country, um, You know, l- lots of them, and in, in mostly in, or many of them in university towns and larger cities. Um, it's a movement that's heavily populated by university students, although not entirely. And this is really what's remembered as the second gay movement, the Zweite Schulenbewegung in in Germany. The first one having been the homosexual rights movement in the Weimar era. And as you mentioned, there's so many layers to these groups. Um, part of it is social; they have great ambitions for sort of changing and reforming the subculture. They, you know, host their own parties, but they're also quite antagonistic to the bars and the cruising and so forth. Um, right? They see that this is um, they think that this sort of commercialization, this, you know, sort of vulgar hunt for sex is actually detrimental to, to queer solidarity. Um, you have, um, political strategies, you have real efforts, especially by the end of the 1970s to influence political parties. Um, they, uh, start to found youth groups in the free democratic, um, uh, party, the, the sort of classically liberal party, the FDP. Um, which, in particular, in the federal Re- in the Federal Republic in West Germany, uh, was a major kingmaker. Um, it was the smallest of the three major parties, but it was almost always in coalition uh, with one of them to form a government. Um, they also found uh, youth groups in the Social Democratic Party, and they certainly face some hostility, um, but they, by the end of the decade, certainly are beginning to be taken seriously at the sort of national political level. And and they actually succeed in the 1980 federal election in getting the Free Democrats to adopt a plank about uh, abolishing what's left of paragraph 175, which at the time still set a higher age of consent um, for uh, same-sex acts between men. So you have all of these different layers. And, and because you have these different sort of views of what liberation is or what it ought to be, um, you have uh, incredible divisiveness among members of these groups, right? Some are socialists, some aren't, some really want to take on uh, gender discrimination, right? They um, These are so-called tunten or uh, sort of effeminate uh, gay men. There's a huge controversy over sort of effeminacy um, among men in the movement, whether or not this is something that they should be fighting for acceptance for, whether or not this is detrimental and sort of distracts from the main goals of liberation. You also have incredible fights over pedophilia and the age of consent. Um, and of course, you know, one thing that sometimes gets lost is many of these groups were dominated by, by men um, and were quite misogynistic. And so lesbian activists uh, frequently, you know, were sort of disgusted. They founded their own subgroups and then eventually broke off to found um, their own independent groups and oftentimes found a lot more commonality or similarities with the West German feminist movements um, than they did with uh, the groups that were led by gay men.
1: Yeah, I I, I hope, you know, again, that readers, um, listeners will, will read the book because your coverage in the 70s is is so broad. I, I you know I love maps. <laughs> you have a, a map <laughs> circa 19 1975 for um for spaces in in Berlin both west and east and um i'm also thinking of of your coverage of the political parties and in many in many ways i think it's really important to take a this kind of cross-sectional analysis of of how activism is present even among say gay conservatives you know it, it's not just the Green Party or SPD. I wonder if, if you could say say something about that.
0: Yes, definitely. So I think, you know, one of, um, one of the many assumptions that I maybe sort of parenthetically try to take on in the book is this notion that gay or queer voters are necessarily going to align themselves with a leftist party or with a progressive party. And so a big focus of that chapter on the 1970s in West Germany is on the political and how these activists are are conceiving of the political. And one argument I make, of course, is that um, it's sort of new for activists to think about sexual identity as having political consequences, as um, indicating that you should Um, You know, consume in a certain way, that you should vote in a certain way, that you should belong to a certain political party. I think we're quite comfortable with that notion in the US today, right? Right. If you are queer, it's assumed that you are a Democrat, but that is very much not how uh, activists or just queer people in general were were thinking about this in the 1970s in West Germany. And so I start off by um, essentially showing or, or arguing that there wasn't a consensus among gay men or or queer people more broadly about which party best served their interests. There were, in fact, a lot of uh, gay conservatives, a lot of people who belonged to the Christian Democratic Union. Um, There were also some who belonged to the Free Democratic Party, which was, again, the sort of classically liberal centrist party. And then there were, of course, some who belonged to the Social Democratic Party. So it was um, maybe not evenly split across the different parties, but it was certainly quite fractured. There wasn't an assumption that just because you're a gay man, you're going to belong to this one party. And over the course of the 1970s, I think there are efforts to sort of pressure political parties and also define uh, almost a political profile um, for gay voters or, or queer voters. And um Really, the party that is the beneficiary of that is the Free Democratic Party. It's, it's uh, this, this centrist party that in the 1970s really sort of redefines itself as a party of minority rights. It has this incredibly idealistic um, set of party theses uh, that sort of define itself vis-a-vis civil liberties and, and rights and so forth. And so at the time, it seems like this ideal vehicle for, um, for queer political demands. And, um, it, you know, in, in the 1980 federal election, um, there's at least some evidence that it really benefits from a huge, uh, sort of sympathy boom from queer voters. There's no way to prove this necessarily, but there's sort of circumstantial evidence that suggests this might be the case. And certainly, um, FDP politicians themselves, uh, think that this might be the case. Of course, in the later eighties, they, uh, they leave the coalition that they've been part of with the social Democrats and they form a new coalition with the uh, Christian Democratic Union. And that leads to a sort of conservative shift in the party. And they never renounce that, um, you know, that that view of right. gay rights, but they sort of back away from it.
1: Mm Hmm. mm Hmm. mm Hmm. Yeah. I. I, That's a great. That's a great answer to this. There's so much research to be done in on on that subject. Um. I've got one more big question for you, Sam. And and you know, like on the hot seat constantly uh, would, um, with these responses. But, um, could you tell us a little bit about the placement of your book in Cold War history and. You know, I, I've got to mention this because I think one of my favorite chapters is is your chapter nine on East Germany. And you talk in it about the Golden Age and the Grey Republic and, and the thousands and thousands of documents that you can look at in the Stasi archive. And, you know, I mean, you begin with a statement, which I, I find pretty interesting and compelling. Uh, and you say East Germany was an extraordinarily extraordinary place for gay people in the 1980s. So, you know, I guess my question is is really a Cold War question. It's how people and citizens influence the state. And in this case, it's an authoritarian state. Um, so how do your, your activists manage um, after all the evidence you've collected to, to do that in a Cold War context?
0: Yeah, this I mean, I think this really um, gets to the heart of what I was hoping to accomplish in this book. Um, it's. I think the chapter you mentioned, Chapter Nine, it's my last substantive chapter. Uh, in some ways, it's my favorite chapter. It's my favorite material from the book, um, and it, I guess, to my own mind, is is the material that was most eye opening to me um, when I when I found it. And I guess maybe one way of answering this is by talking about my own evolution on uh, or, or in how I was thinking about this material. So when I set out, I was very much uh, I think, influenced by the sort of standard Cold War architecture um, that really, I mean, still inflects, I think, how a lot of people think about the era, right? That you have the sort of
1: good West
0: and the yeah. evil East. You have yeah. sort of total-
1: dictatorship, right. democracy.
0: Right, exactly. <laughs> dictatorship and democracy, as as I have in my, in my subtitle. And uh, essentially... One of the first pieces of evidence I collected as I was setting out on this research was an interview actually with a gay American uh, who had lived in Berlin at various points in the 1980s. And this was an incredibly eye-opening moment for me because he really wanted to talk about how boring West Berlin was (laughs) and how great East Berlin was and how, how he went to East Berlin every week. He had a ton of gay friends there. It was much more fun to go out there. He wasn't really interested in this, you know, supposedly wonderful subculture in West Berlin. And my head basically exploded. I thought, wait a minute, this is not at all the narrative that I thought I was going to be getting. And as I sort of, you know, continued doing research, I found, yes, in fact, the 1980s witnessed this massive opening up for queer people in um, East Germany. You have the age of consent revised so that it's equalized with um, with heterosexual sex. You have um, one of my biggest finds in the archives was that there's a new military policy to allow Uh, Gay, openly gay people to serve. And there is, I want to caveat that by saying there's a question about to what extent that was actually enforced or or carried out, but it's certainly a policy that was promulgated and it it was accepted by the leaders. So um, certainly the policy is changing. You have personal advertisements start running in newspapers. You have newspapers running lots of positive coverage about um, sort of queer issues. You have a huge... um, Gay and lesbian movement that gets founded primarily under the umbrella of the Protestant Church, which was a uh, you know at least nominally independent organization, even in the authoritarian context of East Germany. Um, so you have all of this really rich ferment and development, and this this was already known. I, I you know the military thing is something. Um, I think I might be uh, one of the first people to write about. Yeah. Uh, much- you, have,
1: you, have a, you have a great chart yeah. <laughs> on the one on page of your book, that, which I think is extensively researched. And, you know, for, for on, on one side of it, it's the acceptance of homosexuality in the military. And the other, it's the equalization of the age of consent. I hope people check that out.
0: That was something I really, you know, it was, it took a lot of time to, to sort of get all those dates and to make comparisons. And of course, as I mentioned, you have to, especially with the military side of things, take it with a chunk of salt because, um, just because a policy's changed doesn't mean that practice is actually changing, but, um, but, you know, but so so a lot of this was already known, but a lot of it had been dismissed by historians or activists as sort of window dressing as, as, you know, nothing had actually changed. And so I really tried to delve into two things in my research. I wanted to delve into what these changes meant for people on the ground. And I also wanted to figure out how had this happened, right? We, this is an authoritarian state. Uh, no one had, you know, there were sort of theories or suppositions about how this change had come about but no one had 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 found sort of the smoking gun the document that said this is this is what happened and so I spent a lot of time in the Stasi archive um, trying to chase down both of these and I think the most exciting set of documents I found, um, were a set of memos within the Stasi essentially outlining a change in how they were going to approach gay activists, How the not only the Stasi, but how the government was going um, to approach gay activists. And so up until the sort of early to mid 1980s, the Stasi had basically set down this line of, we are not going to engage with these people, we're not going to accept their demands, you know, they might be a uh, vector for foreign infiltration, for foreign espionage, and we're simply not going to engage. But as these movements in the church really grow, they start spreading across the country, the Stasi wakes up and says, wait a minute, we might need to change our strategy. And so these memos outline a change in strategy whereby the government is going to actually accept most of their demands as a way of diffusing the sort of political momentum. So there, it's, it's a decision... That's completely cynical, right? It's designed to weaken the movement. Um, And that's where looking at how these changes actually affected people on the ground comes in and reading both um, documents from the movement itself and the oral interviews that I was able to conduct. My you know, my best sort of interpretation is that these changes had a substantial effect on how queer people lived in East Germany, that their lives improved substantially as a result of it. Um, That's not to say that things were perfect. It, after all, was still an authoritarian, you know, uh, society. Um, But essentially that, you know, there was massive positive change um, for queer people in the 1980s in East Germany. And to get back to your question, I think um, I try and set that in a broader Cold War context and make the point that Yes, places like East Germany were absolutely authoritarian. People did not have the same set of civil liberties or civil rights. But that doesn't mean that there was no civil society. It doesn't mean that there was no opportunity for political change or political activism, especially when we get to like the 1970s or the 1980s. There actually are opportunities for ordinary citizens to try and influence the, the government, the, the, the dictatorship. And in the case of gay and lesbian activism, they are wildly successful in doing so. hmm hmm hmm
1: mm-hmm. Well, um, we're we're almost toward the end, Sam, and I, you know, I'm gonna give you two final questions to to think about. The first is if you would perhaps to our listeners here at New Books Network, maybe recommend some promising directions that that you see in queer studies and, and especially in the coming to terms, or as as it would be, maybe not coming to terms for ordinary Germans with issues of of racism and xenophobia and queerphobia and sexual difference. I know this is a really big question, but I like your phrase um, toward the end in writing this as history with a word of caution, urging, quote, neither a triumphal narrative nor its denial. So it, that's my question for you, if you would talk about maybe some of the historiography or new and interesting work that you see. And then finally, if you could maybe talk about your current projects and what you might be working on.
0: That is, those are both great questions. I you know, feel really lucky to be working in a field that has so many other brilliant scholars um, also doing really important work in sort of the German history of sexuality, the German history of gender. Um, so I think uh, in particular, there's a, a focus on, as you mentioned, um, looking at how race inflects queer discourses, queer activism, um, two really um, wonderful books that are coming out soon, uh, one by Laurie Marhofer, Um She's publishing this year also with University of Toronto Press on um, sort of racism and the making of the Weimar era homosexual rights movement. Um, And then Chris Ewing, who's um, sort of my contemporary, he in the next year or two will be publishing a really wonderful book on racism in the West German um, movement. I think also... um, Uh, Jennifer Evans is soon going to be publishing a really wonderful book on queer kinship. And I think that's a really exciting new direction, um, in, uh, in queer studies. Uh, there's also obviously a lot of focus on moving the discourse past just gay men, um, You know, to look at sort of queerness as a broad set of of gender and sexuality difference. Um, I think, in particular, of Anna Haikova's efforts to, you know, reframe how we think about the Holocaust and sort of tell a queer history of the Holocaust. Um, And then there's also, and I I very much consider myself part of this, there's an effort to, um, I think, think more critically about the relationship between queerness and states. I think, um, again, one of the interventions I'm trying to make is that. This is something we need to rethink and think about more critically. And I think there are other people doing that work. Um, Craig Griffiths, for instance, just published a really great book on um, the queer activism of the 1970s in West Germany that I definitely recommend. Um, Jake Newsom is about to publish in the next year or two, um, A History of Uh, the pink triangle, the sort of iconic symbol of of sort of gay liberation. So um, there's just so much uh, other work. I've also already mentioned Andrea Rotman's work about queerness in uh, 1950s and 1960s Berlin. And I really feel lucky that I have so many wonderful colleagues and interlocutors. Um, And then I guess my own next project, uh, I've written quite a bit about this in sort of article forms, I'm working on a book about lesbianism in the Nazi period. Um, again, this is something where I'm very much not alone. There are a lot of wonderful scholars, including both Anna Heikova and Lori Marhofer, who have done really important work on this topic in, in recent years. Um, and. Again, I think it fits in both with this desire to expand the bounds of what we think of as queer history to include histories that aren't just of, of gay men. Um, I, it's something where I have a lot of interest in talking, obviously, about how race and sexuality inflect each other. And then finally, looking at the sort of complex relationships between queerness and states in different
1: times and places. I, I see this as, as so promising. Thank you for, for all of those names and for all of those... Um references. I've I've actually interviewed or I am planning to interview some of them. So um I'm really grateful for that. And I think um our audience here and in, in on our channels for new books in German studies and new books in gender and sexuality um will will thank you for that as well. So um we're we're winding down Sam and I wanted just to say thank you for joining me in covering so much ground. Um, I, I'm so impressed by um, this as uh, social history, political history covering um, so many different fields as ones at once. And um, I wanted one more time to mention to our listeners that uh, we've been talking to Sam Hunicky. His book is called "States of Liberation: Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War." Germany. This is just out now published by the University of Toronto Press 2022. And I hope our listeners will pick it up after this interview. Sam, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast here at New Books Network. today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. And I really appreciate you
1: and all the work that you do to um, bring new books to light. And I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. Until next time.